shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our 13th anniversary broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with a new perspective based on cognitive function. Keep the fires of innovation pioneering and our shared culture of giving burning for future generations. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most social problems such as disability challenges, poverty, violence, and crime. This is a call-in podcast. You may at any time feel free to call in with any questions you may have in regard to cognitive function in our program, Emotional Budgeting. Please call toll-free 888-627-6008 in the U.S. Canada or direct, 323-744-4831. Today's podcast episode is focused on the prison system, juvenile detention, prison reform, and cognitive functioning. This is a big topic, no less a challenge to current state of affairs. I will start today with some background in light of kind of a history or information on our current state of affairs on why prison reform, criminal justice system is a vital and important part of our social society today. The U.S. prison population, given from statistics of newsroom, media background, online info, taken from such statistics, institutions such as Pew, etc., one in 31 adults in the U.S. is under some form of correction supervision. These are older statistics as they tend to trickle down at a slow rate, but nonetheless, still relevant today. According to Pew, in 2008, more than one in every 100 adults in America is behind bars. One and a half million adults are in state or federal prison custody, one and a half million, and another 700,000 in local jails for almost two and a half million as of 2008. One in every 53 people in their 20s is behind bars. State and federal prisons were considered to swell from that time moving forward. Imprisonment levels are expected to keep rising, according to the Pew, but this was also given in, uh, as an older date of 2007. By 2012, the nation's combined prison population will outnumber the residents of Atlanta, Baltimore, and Denver combined. The United States incarcerates more people than any country in the world, Including China, the U.S. prison population rose by more than 25,000 inmates in 2007. These are older statistics, but nonetheless, indication of 
what is going on. Female prison population, there are almost eight times the number of women in prison than there were just 30 years ago. Men still are roughly 10 times more likely to be in jail or prison, but the female population is, still, is growing. Uh, the cost of criminal justice. Total state spending on corrections. Total state spending on corrections, including bonds and federal contributions, topped $49 billion, and this was in 2007. 2007, states spent $44 billion in general funds, and that was an increase of 315% from the year previous uh, period. And while figures vary widely by state, the average spent to keep a prisoner behind year, uh, bars was 23876 per year. So that is as if every one of those people had received Social Security, basically. The total bill for criminal justice in 2001 was more than $167 billion. By 2011, continued prison growth is expected to cost states an additional $25 billion. Recidivism. One in ten prisoners are re-incarcerated. One in ten. Within three years of their release. In the United States, nearly 700,000 people are released from prison each year. And an estimated 9 million individuals are released from jail. 9 million. So, cycling through jail. Children are prisoners. Well, recidivism, 66% of released prisoners are arrested again within three years for a new crime or for violating the terms of their release. They roll. 52% end up back in prison within three years. So, basically half. Children. Of prisoners. There are more than 2.7 million children on top of the 2.5 million adults incarcerated. There are also, in addition, 2.7 million children of those incarcerated adults. An estimated 7.3 million children have a parent in prison or under some form of state's federal supervision. 7.3 million. Some 10 million young people in the United States have had a mother or father or both spend time behind bars at some point in their lives. 10 million. So we can see here that there may have the potential of cycling from institution to institution and from generation to generation the potential. One third of the 2 million men in state federal prisons are fathered two or more children in general, more than 60% of defenders in state and federal prisons in the United States are incarcerated more than 100 miles from their last place of residence. So we're basically saying they're away from family. 57% of fathers and 54% of mothers in states have never had a personal visit with their children. So we're discussing the state of affairs of what may happen to those children and the contact and the sense of family unity or the lack of. The average age of prison inmates, minor children, is the average age of prison inmates, minor children, so in other words, this is a children's age, is eight years old. 
Black children are nearly nine times more likely to have a parent in prison than white children, while Hispanic children were three times more likely. More than 80% of the children and prisoners live with their other parent, while 20% live with grandparents and other relatives. 2% live in foster home or agency or institution. While about 90% of incarcerated fathers report that their children live with their mothers, only 28% of female prisoners say their children's father is the child's caregiver. So basically, we are looking at an extended portion of difficulties and challenges, financial challenges, moving forward in a family with obvious issues for uh, the children. So then we have the causes of juvenile delinquency. These are just moving forward. We are going to just describe briefly some of the ongoing issues today. And causes of juvenile delinquency should be uh, given out by Tulsa Juvenile Criminal Defense Lawyers. 2018. It should be understood that you cannot group the causes of juvenile delinquency or juvenile crimes into one single category. The truth is each form of delinquency is as individual as the juvenile themselves, but that is not the outcome. It's not necessarily as individual as how the predicament that they arrived, because the outcome can indeed be channeled by the single environmental issue of being incarcerated and in the single environment of an institution, juvenile delinquent uh, detention center. That is a singular environment, no matter their individual predicament of arriving or having uh, how they arrived there. It is because of these very stark differences in background information and types of crime committed that parents and guardians should always seek legal defense firms to offer specific defense representatives. This coming from, of course, defense attorneys. Factors, according to them, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. This is now the thoughts at home contributing to juvenile delinquency. And we have read the statistics of the number of parents and then their children, so we can now derive some ideas. Violence in the home. Homes where violence is prevalent will almost always result in children who act out violently. Violence does not have to be actually aimed at the child themselves to cause juvenile delinquency, but violence that is visual or auditory and creates PTSD. Financial issues, if the home of the child is struggling financially for extended period of time, it will have an impact on children in the home. These kids will have be more inclined to steal so that they can have things other people have and become resentful against others. This is according to, again, the thoughts of uh, attorneys. Drug or alcohol abuse. When there is substance abuse in the home, the friend or family circle or the child is abusing drugs or alcohol, criminal acts become more common. Abuse problems often requires have, <clears throat> having to find ways to support the habit. 
And we can see from the incidence of inmates and the breakup of families, but the breakup may be the reason why there's have been in jail, et cetera, and the ongoing uh, machine of perpetuating the next generation of deviants or maladaptive behaviors. Poor school or children that struggle in school often turn to a life of crime because it's much easier. Several studies have been conducted to show that children who lack in reading skills are more apt to get involved in illegal activities. It is not understood why this has such a serious impact on the lives of children, but it's a very common issue, and we will describe at the end of this podcast why. The lawyers may not know, but with the podcast describing our cognitive functioning, we can describe why, and we will hear shortly. Lack of school attendance. Even if your child is not struggling in school, poor attendance is a common theme in young offenders. It is believed that this is because the children are not being taught to respect authority. Yes, but there is an underlying issues, and we will get to that as well. It is also believed that poor attendance is showing children that they can do what they want. Thus, the irony of putting children in detention for not going to school. Whereas the principal has the right to expel students and that is leaves that is much easier apparently and uh, without consequence other than there's expelled from school. So there seems to be a contradiction in keeping students who have done nothing but not go to school and juvenile delinquency and students who have done something bad to expel them from school. Uh, first can find that contradiction. Strange. Peer pressure. Sometimes the only cause of a child getting into trouble is peer pressure. Some kids are pushed into committing crimes by their friends. The thought of being rejected by their group is too much for a young person to bear as they go along with the crime. As you can see, this, this outline clearly marks many of what I would call common sense ideas of what why a child may create uh, end up in juvenile delinquency. Boredom. Many kids simply get bored and search for something exciting to do. Vandalism and similar thrill-seeking crimes are often the result of boredom and not malicious intent. So this is the idea coming from lawyers, Tulsa Juvenile Criminal Defense Lawyers, and their thoughts on why uh, kids end up in juvenile delinquency. On the surface, this is what makes uh, quite a bit of sense, but as we will pull the covers back and engage the mind, we will see that underneath we have the means and the tools to address these issues on because we know why. Different punishments for different crimes. And this is, again, from the Tulsa Juvenile Criminal Defense Lawyers on some of the differences in trying to address different sets of crimes with different sets of means. 
And in that, we have no one wants to think about children committing crimes or why those crimes were committed. In many cases, the horror stories behind the actions are much worse than the actions themselves. To protect these minors from further harm while still making them understand they did wrong, they must accept some form of punishment. Basically, this is the rationale behind juvenile delinquency reform and uh, detention. Behavioral risk factors associated with juvenile delinquency. So there is what we have seen the children are vulnerable, are going to be vulnerable to repeating or being in a situation that actually uh, aligns itself with those ideas of why children will end up in juvenile delinquency. But there are other reasons that they did not address. And these are the mental health. And statistics have indicated that 80 to 90% of all children in juvenile delinquency have some form of mental health or at risk for mental health disorder. These include, in large part, kids who have been or vulnerable or have been uh, exposed to fetal alcohol. And individuals with FASD, which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which we did discuss in previous podcasts, who suffer from brain trauma and may be undercounted due to the... more prevalent than what we now count because of the difficulty in assigning certain facts to the diagnosis, such as did the mother drink, may or may not be able to account for that. And thus, the diagnosis of FASD would be uh, extremely difficult to um, confirm. So, for this reason, it may be undercounted, but within the juvenile delinquency system, we have well over 60% that have been associated with foster care. And of that, 700 to a million children per year are currently in a foster care system. And of those, 60 to 80% have some mental health disorder. So, we can see where we are funneling children from one institution and now we find ourselves more and more being funneled into another institution with mental health issues. As we can indicate, children who are in foster care or have mental health disorders are likely due to the fact that there has been trauma. Otherwise, they most likely would not be in foster care whether it's drug abuse from the parents or abuse or physical or other kinds, there's usually some reason why the state would remove the child from the parents' premise or control. And usually it's not good. It's not a good reason. Thus, again, we have children who are also vulnerable. So not only do we have ongoing issues of 
children, 7 million children. Of inmates, we have an ongoing 1 million, up to 1 million, who cycle in and out of foster care at any given time, with also vulnerable to mental health issues. And thus, we have 80 to 90% of these in juvenile delinquency with a mental health disorder. So again, we have heard on news from time to time, we call it warehousing for mental health. And we can see why this might occur. There is a reason why these children may end up in a situation that we discussed based on those factors indicated by the Tulsa defense lawyers. By the time they reach adulthood, those with FASD in foster care, 60% will likely come in contact with the law and a reported 50% become dependent on welfare programs. By the time they reach adulthood, it it will be as many as 80% who have been in contact with the law. So they may be in and out of the prison system. They may not be there for long or it may be over extended periods of time. So over 171,000 youth with FASN, those are only those who have been diagnosed. And again, it's very difficult. Uh, diagnosis is, is far and few between, and uh, it can be expensive, and it can be uh, not well understood as a brain trauma. We'll experience with the juvenile court system every year. Propensity for adolescents and young adults have an increasing contact with institutions and government agencies is increased due to the high representation of foster children with FASD whose mental health is unlikely to be mitigated in the foster care system. This is research, 2010, by Kaylee Hobbock. Barriers to meeting juvenile delinquent mental health needs. Juvenile court detention system consists of separate entities across 52 states, local jurisdiction leading to a fragmented response to handling and offending juveniles. They may or may not be getting care. It's up to the local entities normally and difficult to systematically follow uh, those who do and those who don't. So there are different... Facilities create differences of condition affecting sentencing, rehabilitation, education, and staff training. The studies of justice policymakers that included judges, judges, prosecutors, sheriffs, and correctional officers. Uh, differences of sentencing preferences range from punishment to rehabilitation orientation. The very wide discrepancy of juvenile parole officers and judges allows for greater personal influence of the offending juvenile processing outcome and thus uh, less systematic ways of dealing with it. So five facts given about criminal justice reform, and we are today looking at legislation of reform, so we are thinking about that today. The White House, on May 23, 2018, an article on prison reform, hosted a half-day prison reform summit with the goal of reducing the number of incarcerated Americans and making society reentry easier for prisoners, not necessarily directing a preventative measures, but a first step 
Act, a bipartisan bill that aims to reduce recidivism and reform incarceration practices. We are working backwards. Reverse engineering our next generation. On both sides of the aisle, there is little debate. The country's criminal justice system must be reformed. The U.S. just has just 5% of the world's population, but it's home to almost 25% of the world's prisoners. Last week, the First Step Act was endorsed by the 48 members of Problem Solvers Caucus. So again, a quick rundown of statistics today. Close to 2.3 million Americans are incarcerated, and we discussed the children of almost 7 million of those children. We can expect to face difficulties as described by the Tulsa defense attorneys. Our imprisoned in state correctional facilities and a breakdown of that, 48,000 youth who are currently in juvenile detention figures on top of the 2.3 million Americans. And again, 840,000 are on parole, including uh, on top of that. Recidivism rate for American prisoners was 77% within five years of being released. This is the latest. I quoted 2008. This is recent. Uh, roughly 39% of the rearrests were for drug offenses, 38% for property offenses, 29% were for violent offenses. It is exceedingly difficult to find a job after prison. As many as three out of four people remain unemployed. So these are the reform issues that possibly lead to recidivism. Estimated 70 million U.S. adults with felony records. 70 million U.S. adults with felony records face hurdles that make finding employment a struggle. 70 million. A recent City Lab article reported that just 12.5% of employers would accept a job application from an ex-offender, noting that hiring him or her would be bad for business. This is, seems uh, common. Prison reforms differ from sentencing reform. Prison reform calls for changes to the prison system. So again, we're reverse engineering. We're trying to... We haven't acted on preventing... We have acted on the trauma for everyone while the inmate is in prison and trying to do something at that point, which is problem-solving in a reverse fashion, but nonetheless trying to. The MacArthur Foundation found that the majority of Americans think jail should provide treatment and rehabilitation. So sentence, that's good. Sentencing reform calls for changes in how crimes are sentenced. Again, we're not preventing. We don't have an idea. Apparently, the lawyers, we have no reason to know why. Why is this happening? We will, we have the answer here at the end of this hour. Other countries have vastly different criminal justice systems from the U.S., Following disease outbreaks and overcrowding in prisons in the late 1990s, the Russian government took deliberate steps to lower its inmate population, which is pretty remarkable given that Russia is very autocratic. Today, the country incarcerates roughly 681,000 inmates, the same as per capita of the state of New Jersey. 
Now we come to why and how. Why do these kids do this? Why do people end up doing these things and in prison? It is my opinion that a discussion of our penal system is meritless without a method of prevention. Finding, developing, and implementing a method to positively influence behaviors and prevent the need for incarceration as well as decrease recidivism rates is why the American Academy of Primary Care Psychologists has started this podcast, Talk Revolution, to identify the important issues in our society and offer a platform for social change. The Emotional Budget Program was developed as a base instrument to provide a structure for the brain to develop maturation and ultimately provide a means for an individual to solve emotional systemic problems. We have addressed throughout several of these podcasts how this influences, how the state of physiology, emotions, and processing Cognitive functioning all play a part in the outcome of behavior and the importance that brain function drives behavior and behavior does not necessarily drive cognitive functioning. So it is not, you may have some success as it's pointed here, with instituting discipline as a means of changing our thinking, which is cognitive functioning. But the success rate is very low. 77% recidivism in five years. It was just the latest statistics. So the success rate there is only 23%. So let us start with what every brain is trying to provide for the individual. It is to solve its daily functional issues. Depending on the immediate availability of resources, an individual's brain chemistry, neuron development, the responses may or may not fit society's expectations. How it goes wrong is when an individual interprets brain signals and translates it in a rational thought of need or motive. So we were given motives by the Tulsa defense attorneys, the defense uh, for uh, uh, juvenile delinquency, delinquents, and their ideas of motives and Outcomes were, but they did not know why. Here we are describing why. The why is the pain. The greatest and perhaps the most misunderstood signal would be the brain's message indicating pain, discomfort, or feelings of being overwhelmed. It is at this point we can view the lack of brain's ability to accurately process ongoing information that would be a clue to how an individual could solve its problems. We will assume for the sake of brain processing that every input is a form of data. So we can form light, sound, visual, heat, sensory, all those that we described in the physiological. The 
podcast indicating physiology connection to emotional pathways or to emotional behavior, emotional processing and behavior outcomes. So, for example, we can, a simple example, uh, a simple pain from a fire or a cut, immediately we can see the problem and come up with a solution. Move hand, protect wound. Um, What if we cannot see the pain? We have less clues, and immediately the individual is looking around for visual confirmation that can mislead our senses to the true nature of the message from the brain indicating it is indeed in pain. So the assumption here, or the indication is, the verbalization and the acknowledgement is to acknowledge that the individual is in pain, though we cannot see it. There lies the challenge, to acknowledge that it is pain, and to acknowledge that we cannot see it. This is why the Emotional Budget Program is so effective influencing individuals' positive behaviors within our institutional expectations because it provides the brain a platform to solve for emotional problems that impact physiological reactions. Crime is essentially a poor problem-solving solution by an individual within the expectations of society. That's a, for that individual was a means of trying to solve a problem for themselves. Whether it's money, whether it's pain, it, at any given moment, that is their solution. Crime is their solution to a problem. It is a poor interpretation of individuals of the pain signal sent by the brain. So, given those five issues, an individual decides to commit a crime or be violent because of their lack of understanding of what their pain is derived from and how to solve it. An individual attempts to interpret these signals here, me, or she may or may not use visual or auditory clues from their environment, feel compelled to come up with a solution. So, for example, we gave the children, we gave their parents, may be incarcerated, they may be broken up, they may be in foster care. They know this. This is their environment. And from there they see their peer groups. They see interpretations. They are given clues. And they use this to develop Solutions, which, when they are not good solutions, end up in jail and committing crimes. So some of these factors that lead to crime, or in because they are interpreted as crime and impact others, hurt themselves and hurt others. Self-medication, opioids, alcohol, cannabis, these are tend to be self-medicating methods of solving pain, pain that we cannot see as adults looking at our children, pain that children cannot see from their brain signals. They cannot, they are not interpreting, but they are seeking something and the availability, 
and the suggestion from their environment is that this will solve the problem. Violence, lashing out in response to solving feelings of frustration and impatience. Violence again. Physiological reactions, the interpretations of their environment, and the solution. Violence is the solution to for them, which uh, with the consequence of ending up in jail. And with great difficulty, when there is emotional chaos, when there is no less structure, such as foster care, continuous movement, parents who are broken up, financial issues, uh, possible genetic uh, vulnerabilities, seeking institutional care can be a relief. In other words, to have less choice and options despite the lashing out can actually be, have a calming effect even though it is a poor solution to instilling calm. Four walls and bars and a strict regime of limited options may not be conducive to a person's potential, but it can be a calming effect because it reduces the amount of chaos from unstructured emotional uh, processing. So the emotional budget efficacy is 100% because there is no downside in each individual has the potential of their brain processing the information that led leads to the chaos, the frustration, the impatience, and the ability to solve a problem it is only a question of how great can this method, can this in, uh, provide the individual's potential. So can he reach maximum potential? Can he reach 50% of the potential? That is the potential of the individual. But each and every time, this method is 100% effective. Not 23, not 24, not 55, but 100. So how far an individual will succeed then simply is a matter of options available for the child, teenager, and inmate to develop inappropriate solutions. The emotional budget program can be applied in schools and prisons for the general population. The expected outcome of stabilizing emotional processing for the platform is helping individuals solve problems. And we circle back to, again, to the factors attributed to the causes of juvenile delinquency. Violence in home, financial issues, drug or alcohol abuse, poor schoolwork, lack of school attendance, peer pressure, boredom. And as my experience in school psychology, working with children who were not delinquents but still contended with challenges of emotional processing, processing data that pertain to emotions 
that interfered with problem solving. So with school, the ability to attend school, to attend a teacher's lesson, was interfered by the challenges of emotional processing. Lashing out is symptomatic challenge from sensory overload, depending on the vulnerability of the child or their disability. So if a child may lash out, may be quickly overwhelmed by any given number of data associated with their vulnerability and or their environment and their brain function. So each and every child's brain function is different. And that is why in our last podcast, we discussed assessments. It was with the potential that cognitive assessments, IQ tests actually provide the ability to understand each and every child's brain as an individual, as an individual design, not trying to fit every individual into a particular box as that only includes 25 to 33% in the curve that will succeed. But if we look at every child as an individual and the assessment can help to understand how their brain functions, we are able to address their vulnerabilities their strengths, and understand to match and provide the platform through the emotional budgeting, the ability for the brain to process the emotions so they're not using 90% of their brain potential in just simply ruminating the data through the processing centers, but actually deliver the data to points of memory that are available for retrieval. This is a big difference. Data sitting in the processing, data sitting in the portions of the brain for retrieval. This is a difference in physiological reactions, the difference between how the body responds in PTSD, also described in similar podcasts for PTSD. These are all connected because our brains are all similar in function to provide us with stability in our environment and maximize our potential. So every individual should be understood as an individual, provided for as an individual, but understood that the brain is similar throughout humankind and that it will respond in similar ways physiologically, and so on, with differences. So some will fit some adaptation. Others will have more vulnerabilities. Others will be better in other adaptations, in other environments. And these can be strengths. And the weaknesses can be compensated for. And the prevention of children needlessly going into juvenile delinquent 
for detention for these issues that we are describing that can be prevented today, not tomorrow, today, right now. We don't need to wait any longer to prevent these issues. We have the means to prevent every single child from doing something to hurt themselves or others in a way that is addressed with emotional issues. To deal with that now is to provide ability and a platform for every individual, every child, to reach their potential and maximum. By providing this structure that what may have been in the past more readily available or a simpler time has changed to a complex, overwhelming, sensory-loaded continuum of today's current society. And we have not addressed this. We have addressed every technology, but we have not addressed anything to advance socially. Religion has been around for a very long time to address these issues. Structure. Culture is an ongoing adaptation. But we have not kept up with the advancement of technology. We have today, now, developed a program and a method to provide that support to gain us additional adaptations to strengthen our ability to process data, to put the data from, take the data from the processing portion of our brain and put it into the retrieval so we have more, greater ability to problem solve on an end, on a line by line item as we would a budget. We can do with emotions what we have done with finances. We have broken finances apart and moved the data around so that we are very advanced financially, but socially we are still in the dark ages. And this is what budgeting, emotional budgeting program has done. It is advancing what is lagging behind by thousands of years every other technology. We are advancing our ability to process our emotions in a way that allows us to problem solve on an individual basis with free agency. So from this, with great responsibility, with this ability to problem solve comes great responsibility and more responsibility by the individual because now there is greater free agency to problem solve in a way that is meaningful and productive. A continuum, a continuum of incarceration as a means of society's problem-solving methods does not seem productive. Not only is it $167 billion worth of cost, but it is a non-productive cost. So if we spend $167 billion on infrastructure, we are paying for roads that provide for future ingress into our, for construction and our children. 
when we pay $167 billion for prisons, it is a negative outcome in which the children are, again, vulnerable to instituting or to continue the next generation of negative outcomes. So it's $167 billion pushing negative outcomes. This is why this should be the crisis. This is the crisis. But we have a solution. We have developed a solution. It is only for everyone to take a moment and implement this solution on an individual basis, on a school basis, on a prison basis. And we will see the change and the why, and the how, and the understanding developed from this into a society where we can put the money into productive use. So we're not taking away, we are simply shifting from a negative outcome to what should be positive outcomes, money to, again, infrastructure, development, building, preparing, and moving forward, healthcare. So everyone has and can keep their jobs. I mean, in different and productive sectors of society. So for all these podcasts, we have discussed and provided the connection between society's issues, such as crime and violence disability challenges, and we are connecting the understanding of how we can move forward with by applying methods to finally help and move forward the ability for individuals in society to move forward in a cohesive and rational manner. As we can see, while some percentage are able to function clearly and problem-solve in a manner because of both history, adaptation, and environment, there is a good portion that is struggling with all three issues and to leave any individual behind. We have the means to move every individual forward in school, in work, in their lives, for every individual because every brain is similar in its, in its function. Just as a heart is similar in pumping blood, the brain provides the same functions for everyone. So a systematic approach will gain a systematic outcome. And that is the purpose of the emotional budget just as we would with a systematic approach to finances, we have a systematic outcome and data-driven outcome, and we are doing the same for individual behaviors. Reverse engineering works. Disciplinary approach can change a person's mind, but its efficacy is 23%. Wouldn't be more effective to have 100% because we are working with the brain and know that the behaviors will follow 
that is the conclusion. That is the clinical result of Emotional Budget Program. And all these podcasts have simply drawn together why the identifying the issues, why and how cognitive and brain function is so vital to behavior, and that behavior is not necessarily impacting cognitive function, but cognitive function impacts behavior 100%. Behavior impacts cognitive function 23%. Whether it's drug rehab, recidivism, in every regard, the numbers are the same or closely matched, impaired. 23, 24, 27%. But when we work with the cognitive function with the brain, we are working with 100%. We know the outcome. Does it mean that it's easy? No. Does it mean that it won't take work? No. Does it mean that every individual may respond at a different rate of speed? And that's what we've been saying. Every individual is just that. But there's an understanding to the commonality of the brain functions, and therefore applying a systematic approach to gaining the behavior, positive behavior that we are so working so hard and scratch our heads as to why a child may or may not do something. Why does a child go in and shoot his peers in his school? Why does someone lash out and is abusive? These are all understood. From the perspective of cognitive functioning, that has been described in these podcasts. And the application and treatment has been developed. We can move forward now. It is just a matter of determination and willpower as the solution has been developed already. That is the challenge. The challenge now is implementation. That is the challenge we have left. And that is this podcast's challenge. To you, the audience, how do we implement this? How can we implement this across the board in a fair manner, in a, as rapid as possible, to gain momentum and the adaptations that are change, help provide social change for a more productive society? Our next podcast, we will lead a discussion of cognitive functioning and the summary of the emotional budgeting program. In each and every case, we have promoted, we have discussed in some manner, in slight detail, of how emotional budgeting program is and will, can provide support for social change. But in our next podcast, we will we will utilize the whole hour in doing so at this time, because each and every podcast has spent time describing how the connections between cognitive function, physiological reactions, emotional processing is associated with behavioral outcomes. We have done that in each of the podcasts, and we will summarize in our next podcast how that is 
how that can be related to change, how the emotional program will provide that change. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com, for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. I would like to thank our producers, Doug and Don Newsom, and our audience. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul from Bataro.